Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that in your mercy, uh, your word would do its good work in our lives. That it would help us to trust Jesus for salvation, for eternal life. And that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, we would be equipped to live as his people, to do every good work that he has called us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the scene you heard read from Matthew 25, the scene Jesus describes is awesome, isn't it? It's a picture of the end, the revealing of the glory and might and authority of the Son of Man, the heavenly ruler, surrounded by his angels. It is a scene that involves all the nations, all the people for all time gathered before his throne. And it is a scene of judgment, the final judgment of those whose outcome, the final judgment whose outcome is eternal. So to one group, the Son of Man says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the other, he says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is a judgment that will never be reversed. That is final for eternity. They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. An awesome scene and for many troubling there is resistance to the very idea of judgment and the thought of a final judgment that ushers in either eternal punishment or eternal life, no more chances, no change in the age to come, the thought of the finality of that and especially of the idea of eternal punishment is particularly disturbing, that your rebellion against God could deserve such enduring wrath. Now, when you are grappling with the seriousness for yourself and for all of these words, as I hope you do, remember these are Jesus' words and we should do nothing to minimise their weightiness. They are words he wants us to hear and respond to, believing him and acting on them. But, of course, what we do with them will depend on what we think of Jesus and Jesus himself guarantees that, for as you heard and as we will see, Jesus has put himself right at the centre of this scene and attitudes to himself right at the centre of every person's eternal fate. And as you think of the seriousness of these words, think also of the goodness of them and the goodness of God in bringing you here this morning to hear them. Jesus, if you believe him, is telling you now how you can find eternal life then. Speaking to you now so eternal life and not eternal punishment is what you will receive on that awesome day. Speaking openly and plainly, Jesus is making sure the way to life is not a mystery, not a secret for some, but open to all who will hear and believe. And we're going to look at these words, but as we're returning to Matthew's Gospel after our series on the Creed, and we'll be in the Gospel until Easter, let's remind ourselves of where we are in the Gospel story. 
After several years public ministry in Galilee and Judea, Jesus has been welcomed into Judea, welcomed as king by the crowds rejoicing in him as the son of David. Expectations are high, but so is the tension as he's had open disagreement with the religious authorities who control so much of Jewish life and who regard Jesus as a threat to the peace of the community and to their own authority. And Jerusalem's also the location of the great Jewish temple, the focal point of the Jews' worship of God. But in response to a comment from his followers, uh, Jesus has predicted the destruction of the temple and that prompts them to ask Jesus about the end, his coming and the end of the age. And Jesus, as we heard, went on to tell them that the end will come at a time no one expects. You don't know, he says, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then Jesus went on to tell them three stories about how they and all who are listening could be ready for the end, which is both certain but happening at a time no one knows but the Father knows. Stories about a household steward, about ten virgins at a wedding and about three servants expected to use what's entrusted to them while their master is away. Now, in our passage, Jesus is concluding his response to their question and he concludes with this description, this picture of the end itself, of the day when all the nations, everyone, will be judged. And it's not just the awesome seriousness of what Jesus says here that strikes you, is it? What also, I hope, struck you is the way Jesus puts himself at the centre of this picture and so central to whether anyone receives eternal punishment or eternal life. That centrality starts with Jesus speaking of the judge of that day as the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now his Jewish hearers wouldn't have been surprised by that. The Son of Man is that glorious heavenly figure we heard of in Daniel 7 who was given in verse 14 an eternal rule over all, authority over all. This is the kind of context Jewish hearers would expect the Son of Man to appear. But Jesus has made it clear throughout his ministry that when he speaks of the Son of Man, he's referring to himself as that promised figure. Back at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus had declared a paralytic man's sins forgiven. When the religious authorities had objected that only God could forgive sins, Jesus had said, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher and walk. Jesus speaks of his own authority to forgive sins as the authority of the Son of Man. In Matthew 11, Jesus can speak going on of criticism of his own ministry as criticism of the Son of Man. And then in Matthew 16, when asking about who people think he is. He says to his followers, who do people say that the son of man is? And then he clarifies that. Who, who, who do you say I am? In speaking of the coming of the son of man, Jesus is speaking of himself 
of his own coming in glory. And then in the scene he describes, he makes people's relationship with himself central. Says that what matters for where you'll spend eternity is your attitude to him. And so to the sheep, he says, come, you are blessed by my father. Enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was naked. You clothed me. I was a stranger. You took me in. I was sick. You visited me. And again, to the goats, he says, depart from me. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. Jesus says that what matters for eternity is your attitude to your service of the Son of Man, that is, to himself. But what's a surprise for both the sheep and the goats is how the glorious Son of Man determines, measures that attitude to him. The righteous answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, verse 40, will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Oh, and when the goats, those on his left, say, look, we never, we never saw you, we never had a chance to serve you, when did we see you hungry? He says to them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. See, both groups think they have never encountered the glorious son in need, had no opportunity to feed or clothe or welcome him. In fact, it's almost unimaginable that they would have that opportunity with the glorious Son of Man. But Jesus says he measures their attitude to him by how they have treated the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, the least of these. Now, who is Jesus talking about? Who are the least of these brothers or sisters of mine? Some people want to say it's the poor of the world, that Jesus is identifying himself with the poor, all the poor, and what he's looking for is a commitment to serve the poor and that will be the measure of judgment on the last day. Now, Scripture tells us we should be kind to the poor and that that pleases God. Two examples, Proverbs, the one who oppresses the poor person insults his maker but the one who is kind to the needy honours him. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord and he will give a reward to the lender. God wants us to be kind and generous to the poor. Just as scripture tells us, we should love all our neighbours as ourselves, love even our enemies. But Jesus does not speak of the poor as his brothers and sisters, as his family in the Gospels. Nor does he speak of his little ones or the least, and the least are the littlest as the poor. Now both are ways of speaking of his disciples. So in Matthew 12, Jesus says, Who is my mother 
And who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And in Matthew 18, Jesus speaks repeatedly of those who believe in him as his little ones. Whoever counts one of these little ones causes one of these little ones who believes in me to fall away. Or verse 10, see to it that you don't despise one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. Jesus has made the test of our attitude to him, the glorious king, the way we treat his followers. And he focuses on the poorest and weakest of them, those in need who make a demand on our time and resources and who can give us nothing in return. Jesus' disciples, you see, included from the beginning many who were poor just because of the economic conditions they were born into. But often in our world, needy brothers and sisters will include both the persecuted those stripped of their their property and excluded from normal social supports and economic opportunities for their loyalty to Jesus, and those who travel for the sake of the gospel, who are preaching the gospel, and so are always dependent on others, and who can in many places meet hostility because of their preaching. In fact, in chapter 10, Jesus has already identified his messengers with himself, with words similar to those we find in chapter 25. The one who welcomes you welcomes me, and the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Or verse 42, whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. The sheep are those who have welcomed those who bring the gospel of Jesus, supported those suffering for Jesus' sake, loved Jesus by loving his people, treating all his disciples as valuable for no other reason than that they are valuable to Jesus. Believing in Jesus, confessing Jesus as Lord, they have obeyed Jesus' command. I give you a new command. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. See, they've obeyed it and they've done it in deed and truth with actions and not just words. Yes, they've done what was open for all to do because all can visit, all can feed, all can welcome. They've done that if they are willing to have their lives interrupted by the needs of others, have the courage to identify with Jesus' people, are willing to expend their time and money. That's the test. Now, do you see the goodness of this test of our attitude to the glorious Son of Man? Jesus doesn't say, welcome, you fought wars in my name. You died in battle for me. He doesn't say, welcome, you built temples for me. He doesn't say, welcome, you instituted festivals in my name. Welcome, you did wonders in my name. He says, welcome, you fed, you clothed, you visited. And whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See, unlike the great of this world, Jesus has made 
His greatness served the welfare of the least of his followers. He, he, he hasn't tried to use his greatness to serve his pride or the expansion of his rule. No, he's made his greatness serve the welfare of the least of his followers. And this test is good because it takes our suffering seriously. Hunger and thirst, loneliness and weakness, they're not illusions to be transcended. They are, says Jesus, needs to be met with practical compassion. This test is good. It creates a community of love where the poor and needy are cared for an alternate community that in its very existence is salt and light in the world. A community that is not a closed community but open to all who repent and believe the gospel and so a community not just of love but of truth. A community that can never aspire to be elitist. Never. But shows faithfulness to Jesus always in welcoming all, including the poor, the marginal, the weak, who will place demands upon us, our time and our resources. And this test is good because it assures Jesus' followers that our welfare always matters to him, that love for him can never be separated from love for his people. In fact, his love for us a love that every believer knows and that moves us to love him, becomes a continuing, permanent, sustained motivation for us to love each other. But however good the test, we still need to see that what is at stake on the last day is our attitude to Jesus. You did for me. You did not do for me. It is doing for Jesus that matters. Yes, it's mediated through and measured by our attitude to his people, but the issue is still what we have done for him, what our attitude to Jesus has been. Jesus is still at the centre, still insisting that our attitude to him will determine our eternity. And that centering where you stand on the last day on himself That enormous claim Jesus makes that he will be the judge of the last day and the standard of judgment will be our attitude to him creates a problem, doesn't it, in dealing with Jesus. It creates a problem for the religious authorities who were responsible for governing the life of the Jewish people for the peace of Jerusalem. Having someone claiming to be judge on the last day is plainly destabilising. Because that's an authority so much greater than theirs, isn't it, to give life. Anyone who believed Jesus would put obeying Jesus far above obeying them. And surely, they think, Jesus will want as they would want to get power for himself, marginalising them completely. It's a problem for them. And Jesus' claims are a problem for us, aren't they? Do you feel it? Firstly, you see, it's an affront to our autonomy, our claim to make our own rules and to be accountable to ourselves for our lives. Jesus is claiming an absolute authority to have his judgment on our lives prevail over our judgment. And he is claiming a terrifying power to punish eternally those who refuse to embrace his rule 
to live by his commands. Oh, and it's an affront to our accommodations about Jesus. You see, many recognising Jesus' undoubted influence through his word and church on our culture, on our world, for people who claim to be Christians still make up the largest faith in the world. Many want to find a place for Jesus. Their lives in history and culture, you know, as a teacher of the good life, as an influential ethical guide, a prophet, a social reformer, but not as the mighty judge, not as the one whose word you must believe and obey to live. But you see, Jesus insists that he is the glorious son of man who will judge all the nations and tells us where we stand on that day depends on our attitude to him. And Jesus' sense of himself, of his place, of his being the king who will reign eternally, the son of God, that can't be removed from the gospel record. No matter how sceptical about the historical accuracy of the gospels you may be, you still have a Jesus who thinks he's king. Jesus' sense of himself is a problem. It's a problem for all who want to approve of Jesus but don't want to agree with him about himself. You see, how can you reckon someone good to be a good teacher, an ethical guide who is not only so wrong about himself but appears to be so full of himself? A mere man claiming to be the universal judge. If Jesus is not who he says he is, you cannot think of him as good. Jesus claimed that he will be the judge on the last day and that our treatment of him, the standard of judgment, creates a problem. And it was an intolerable problem for the concerned Jewish rulers. And as a consequence, the contrast between what Jesus says about himself here and what happens to him in the next couple of days cannot be greater. In fact, the very next thing Jesus says after saying he's the glorious son of man is the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And so the story unfolds. The one who claimed to be the judge of all is judged, first by the Jewish authorities, then by Pilate, the representative of Roman, of human power. Judged and condemned. The one who claimed heavenly glory is humiliated, mocked, finally exposed naked on a cross. The one who said he would have the company of thousands of angels, is abandoned, alone. The one who claimed to send some to eternal punishment is punished as a liar and pretender. The one who claimed to be able to give to some eternal life is killed. And the consequence of those events for what Jesus claims about himself is not lost on the observers. They make plain the emptiness of Jesus' claims as they mock him on the cross. You who would destroy the temple, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. You see, it's clear to them that it's impossible the one so humiliated by his enemies, so cursed of God hanging there on that tree, could be the king of God's people, the beloved son of God. Jesus' death on the cross is the complete contradiction 
of a claim to universal significance, to be the glorious Son of Man. And if Jesus stayed dead, those mockers are right. And you have no need to worry about this awesome picture Jesus has painted of the end and his role in it. That's right, isn't it? If he stays dead, it's just lies, a megalomaniacal fantasy. But Jesus doesn't stay dead. The apostles said they saw him after he was killed, alive in the body which was killed, still with the wounds of the nails and the spear, saw him not at a distance, but there in front of them in their midst. They touched him. He's no ghost. They spoke with him. They walked with him. They ate with him. And not just on one occasion, but many, not just one stereotyped appearances, many different kinds of appearances, not just for one intense day, but over 40 days. Jesus lives. And in his resurrection, his claims for himself and his place in God's plans for the world are shown to be true. He is the son of man Daniel spoke of. He's the one with all authority, as he himself said, in heaven and on earth. Oh, he is the one who, conquering death, has now an eternal reign. And he is the one who in his kindness has told you and I what to expect, that there is a last day, a judgment to come, and he will be the judge and we, every one of us, will stand before him. And he has told us what the standard of judgment will be, what will be the difference between those who go away to eternal punishment and those who enter into eternal life, enter into the kingdom prepared for them, from before the foundation of the world. And knowing that, that Jesus speaks the truth, and knowing you have heard him this morning, the question is, where will you stand on that day? Will you stand on the right of the king or the left, amongst the sheep or amongst the goat, with those who enter eternal life or those who go into eternal punishment, with those who have loved and obeyed the king in loving his people? the least of them, or with those who had no time for Jesus' brothers and sisters, ignored their needs, never cared for them because they never cared for Jesus. He meant nothing to them. And it is about loving and obeying the Lord Jesus. This story is not about saving yourself by your doing good. You cannot separate the way you treat his people from what you think of Jesus himself. And the reality is the more Christian they are, the more they think the same about Jesus as he thinks of himself, the less you will want to have to do with them if you are determined not to acknowledge Jesus. So where will you stand on that day? Where will you stand on that day? Now, as I ask that question, I know that there are at least three groups amongst us and I want to talk to each of you. So firstly, there are those saying, you know, I see Jesus claims these things and I see that if he's risen, he ought to be believed. But I'm not sure, not sure if I know enough about him to be able to make up my mind. I need more information to work out what I think of Jesus and, yes, more importantly, perhaps, 
to reckon what Jesus will think of me. Well, we're happy to provide that information, to give you an opportunity to get to know Jesus better by reading a gospel with you, either in a group or individually. Come and talk with me or Clinton or one of the Christians you know. But there may be others who hear Jesus and know that at the moment they stand amongst those who have never honoured Jesus, shown no love for him in loving his people, maybe even tried to make life hard for them. No, they've lived selfish lives and want to change, want to hear on that day, depart, not depart from me, but come, you who are blessed by my Father. Well, if that's you, whatever your past, however you have treated his people, maybe those closest to you, the living Lord Jesus will forgive and welcome you if you call out to him. Remember, Paul was a persecutor of the church, but he found mercy. The Lord Jesus will show mercy to you if you ask him, and asking him is as simple as saying, Lord Jesus, I have not honoured you by believing you are doing what you say. Please forgive me and make me one of your people by giving me the new life of your spirit. You can call on Jesus. He is living and he hears and he answers. Call on him and come and talk. But then there are those of you, perhaps most of us, who are confident that by God's grace you are amongst Jesus' people, those who have listened to him and believed in him, who confess the Lord Jesus has loved them in dying for them on the cross. I want to talk a bit more about what Jesus is looking for on the last day with you. It should be plain to all of us that on that last day, Jesus is looking for the fruit of believing in him, for our confession of him as Lord to be seen in what we do. Now, as Protestants, we rightly emphasise that we're saved, justified by faith alone, by grace alone, on the basis of Christ's death alone. We're not saved by our works. But saving faith can never be, will never be, alone. If the tree is alive, it bears fruit, fruit that's seen. So we should think hard about what our Lord Jesus says here about how our confession of him as Lord is to be expressed in our lives. Think hard to see if our lives are showing the fruit he expects. And seek, for example, for example, seek his help if we find ourselves growing weary in loving our brothers and sisters, for we can, can't we? And if that's the case, we should pray to know more of his love for us to sustain us in loving others. And we should Look at our lives to show, to see if they're showing the fruit he expects. And, and maybe, yes, repent if we're drifting into selfish and self-contained lives that have no time or space for loving Jesus' people, the least of them. You see, Jesus doesn't say, doesn't say to the sheep, I have looked into your heart and see that you really do believe. And he doesn't say to the sheep, I've listened to your words about me and you've got it right. He says to the sheep, you fed me, you gave to me to drink, you clothed me, you welcomed me, you visited me when I was sick or in prison. You have obeyed my command to love one another. 
And you've shown that in loving my brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters, who can never repay you, never reward you, the least, the poorest, the neediest, who will never advantage you or further your program. You have shown them the love I have shown you in your need, for you could never reward or repay me. So think for a moment of the love the sheep showed. You see, it's actually not a low bar Jesus has set. Many of those he was talking to were poor for themselves, day labourers. They didn't have fridges full of food, cupboards full of clothes. If they took time to visit someone, that was time that they weren't working, getting what they needed for the next day or resting from hard labour. If they gave someone a drink, it wasn't going to the tap, they'd have to walk to a well to fill up their jar again. It cost them to share what they had, their food, their clothes, their time. And there was risk in it. Infectious disease was common to visit the sick posed the risk of becoming sick. To visit those in prison required courage, the courage to identify with those the authorities had already condemned. But these sheep weren't embarrassed to be associated with the marginal and struggling believers. And they didn't treat their neediness as a threat to their well-ordered and busy lives. They loved them. They helped them practically. Now, knowing that, think for a moment of how you are loving your brothers and sisters. What proof now would Jesus find of that love in your life? What would he find in your life today? With whom, say, are you sharing what you have? And perhaps a bigger one for us, with whom are you sharing yourself, your time? You see, there are brothers and sisters here who are in need, who, who need a visit, who know loneliness. There are brothers and sisters who have come from overseas who have far less resources than we do and far greater challenges. Oh, and yes, there are brothers and sisters overseas who are suffering for the gospel and who can be helped through groups like the Barnabas Fund. But recognise you cannot love without personal risk or cost. You cannot love without being willing to have your life interrupted. Now, that's hard, isn't it, in our planned and busy lives. But you cannot love without being willing to have your life interrupted, to have your plans altered, for need is not planned. And so much of what the Lord Jesus looks for is reactive. Oh, yes, you can organise to love as we do through the deacons, but you can't delegate your responsibility to love Jesus' people. You must love. Now, I know this is not a new message. As 1 John says, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning, the command Jesus gave his people. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you, you also to love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. No matter what else is happening in our lives, whatever our formal organised service of Jesus' people may be, there is still only one way that we can be known as Jesus' people now and on the last day. 
love. And it is still true that without love, we are nothing. This is an awesome passage given to us in love by our Lord Jesus. And it is clear, isn't it? Jesus is the judge on the last day and our attitude to him seen in our attitude to the poorest of his people will determine whether we go to eternal punishment or eternal life. He's brought you here to hear it, heed it. Make sure you are trusting him, that you know his love in giving himself for you on the cross and you are showing the love he commands in loving your brothers and sisters, the neediest and the least rewarding to relate to. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in your mercy, write this word on our hearts. Help us to heed it. Convict us that one day we will stand before the glorious Lord Jesus. Convict us of the truth of the test of what he will look for in our lives, lives transformed by knowing his love to love others. And gracious God, we pray that we would be that community where the least is loved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.